You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Another quarter point rate hike. After that decent March jobs report, the street is now ratcheting up the likelihood of another Fed hike in a few weeks' time. But our economists say not so fast. Why more hikes would be a big mistake and where they think rates should go next. Plus, warning signs for the upcoming earnings season. We'll dig into the biggest pain points as well as some unexpected bright spots, and truly, they might surprise you. And China flexing its military muscle again after the Taiwanese president traveled stateside. We'll have the latest developments and the U.S. response. This as China remains the only major economy whose money supply isn't contracting right now. First, though, let's get a look at today's market action. We just saw the Dow turning positive at the end of the past hour. It's up 50 points right now. The S&P still down a quarter percent. Just under 4,100. It's a familiar refrain. The Nasdaq composite today is down about half a percent. Let's dig in there for just a moment as it's the underperformer. You can see the chips, which Samsung announced it will cut memory chip production in an effort to support prices. And we are seeing some positive signs here as a result. Micron, for instance, up 8%. Same for Western Digital. The SMH overall adding 1%. Uh, Micron, the best performer of the entire space with this uh, rebound. Now let's move on to shares of WD40 uh, as well. I don't want to overlook this. It's down today despite a sizable earnings beat late last week. It's on pace for a its worst day since October, and those strong results are being overshadowed by weaker full-year guidance. Again, shares of WD40 are down about 6.5%. Let's get to the Fed now. Just this morning, Citi put out a note saying they see a 65% chance of a rate hike at the Fed's next meeting, especially if we have a strong CPI print this week. Let's get some more detail from our own Steve Leisman. Hi, Steve. Hey, Kelly, good afternoon. Uh, that view by Citi is close to the view of the market, which is, Looked at the data from Friday on jobs and banking and the data coming this week and leaned toward a Fed hike. Fed funds futures trading with a 74% chance of a hike early next month and a 26% chance of no change. It had been closer to 50-50 before the jobs number and the banking data. So the 236,000 payroll growth was the lowest since the pandemic, but it's still double the level needed to find jobs for new entrants to the workforce. The unemployment rate did tick down even with 800,000 plus coming into the workforce in the past two months. So the job market still looks to be pretty strong. Bank deposits, they've seen massive outflows since the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, but data late Friday showed they've stabilized, though bank lending did fall sharply. Here's that bank lending. Commercial and industrial loans from banks plunged $60 billion over the past three weeks, but they remain above the pandemic level. So again, weaker, but not necessarily weak. Fed officials, they've mostly said they don't expect a credit crunch to be severe enough to warrant ending rate hikes. But today, the New York Fed reported that 58% of respondents to their survey of consumer expectations found that credit is hard or very hard to get. The high for the series, it goes back to 2013. So it's two and a half times the average response. Average Americans, Kelly, already seem to be feeling a pretty severe credit crunch. The question is, does that show up in inflation? Wait, Steve, just to be clear, they just reported the tightest conditions since at least 2013? Wow. For for uh, both availability, I'll double check. It's a, it, it's it's current and future. Yeah, it's current and future um, expectations for credit. That one is the credit availability now. That's the tightest it's been, or the hardest to get. And then also in terms of expectations for the year ahead. That's hardest to get. Really remarkable. All right, Steve, stay with us. My next guests are both convinced another rate hike is the wrong way to go. Joining me are Torsten Slock, the chief economist at Apollo Global Management, and Peter Bookvar, chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. 
Welcome to all of you. Peter, I can't, I, it's a new set. This is like a cool new look. I like it. I appreciate you like joining it. me on set for this today. Um, on a sort of more grim and dour note, why don't you think another rate hike right now would be the way to go? I was chuckling when I read your note this morning. Like, Come on, people, seriously? After everything that's happened, you think we should keep hiking? Well, if the Fed is going to use the payroll number as the reason to do it, I think they're mistaken. The, the, the survey period of that number ended like a few days after Silicon Valley Bank went down and ahead of that weekend where we didn't know it was going to happen that Monday. So we have to assume that things changed since that. And if you look at the loan data that Steve just referenced, things have changed. Commercial and industrial loans outstanding are the lowest level since September of last year. Hmm. Commercial real estate loans as a, a outstanding fell by the most in two weeks since 2011. Wow. So there has been an immediate credit response to the downturn of those banks, and it has metastasized to other parts of the banking system. So wouldn't it be more prudent if you're the Fed to say, you know what, maybe I should just take a pause, see how this plays out. There's always another meeting that I can hike interest rates at. Why does it have to be this one so soon after what is really a bank earthquake mm -hmm. that took down those banks, but obviously has broader implications. Yeah, Torsten, what's your response when people say, hey, you know, these banks fell, but so far things aren't too bad. And it's, you know, hey, we got to watch out for that inflation. I mean, even though it's an incredibly lagging report, but, but what's your take? No, so absolutely. I mean, the whole issue here is that the, the regional banks, and here we're talking about Remember, the definition of the Fed data is that bank number 1 to 25 are the large banks, and number 26 to 5,000 are the small banks. And those regional or small banks make up roughly 40% of all lending. So the problem is that when you now have a situation in the regional banks where they're looking at higher funding costs, potentially more regulatory scrutiny, and also potentially significant declines, not only in the liquid assets, but also declines potentially coming in the illiquid assets. I mean, we should not be surprised if they begin to step a bit harder on the brakes. We already saw last week there was a survey from the Dallas Fed, which was done after Silicon Valley Bank from the 21st of March to the 29th of March. And that survey of 71 banks in Texas, it did show a fairly substantial rollover in loan volumes mm -hmm. across all types of lending. So the conclusion is, Kelly, to your question that there's still a lot of uncertainty. It's still early. A credit crunch takes time. But uh, we are going to go through a period where basically re regional banks have to reorganize their balance sheets. And that runs the risk of a sharper slowdown in the economy. Maybe, Steve, if I would put it like this, I'd say we already had the steepest, fastest rate hikes in history. Now we have that accelerated over the past month by the mini credit crunch, let's call it. So why can't the Fed take a wait and see approach here? I mean, some of these, you know, these are leading indicators, things like, you know, lending standards and loan availability, and they could play out over two, three, four, maybe more quarters time. Okay, so let me stipulate here. I know Torsten and Peter very well, hold them in high regard and have deep respect for their, for their points of view. What I'm about to say now, I'm simply taking the other side, perhaps the way somebody from the Fed may see it here. And I'll, I'll throw out a couple factoids here. Bullard last week pointed out that banks only represent 20% of intermediation in the economy. Um, and so his point was that he did not see the um, banking credit crunch creating a huge sort of ripple or wave in the broader economy when it came to a credit crunch. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is they're looking down the pike today or down the throat uh, this week of a core CPI number that if consensus is right, is going to be still going up 
headline coming down, but the expectation is for the uh, inflation, the core inflation, to rise by a tenth and increase the year-over-year rate. So, so the problem that they have is they have to weigh these two things. Right. And what I've heard them say so far, and I ain't saying it's right, what I've heard them say so far is that the inflation problem remains the bigger concern, and they will factor in the credit crunch problem when they see the whites of the eyes of a credit crunch. Let me turn to Peter, who I typically think of as one of the biggest hawks on inflation. Peter, you are like, so, so, and that's why I find your point of view so interesting right now, to, to take as seriously, if not more seriously, the, the economic dynamics you're describing. When Steve says, but core inflation is going to tick up one-tenth, what do you say in response to that? Why, why shouldn't they say, we better make sure we tamp that out? Well, well first of all, they, they, there's nothing wrong with waiting a meeting or two, because that doesn't mean that their inflation fight is over. The core, PC, uh, the core CPI, it's still being elevated by the acceleration in service uh, inflation because of rents, but we know rent growth has slowed dramatically. So when looking out over the next three to six months, the service side of that inflation print is going to slow sharply. Now, goods prices may have bottomed. I think goods prices can actually pick up here. So all I'm just saying is just to maybe take a step back and see how things play out. Don't end your inflation fight. And the other thing, to Steve's point, when he talked about Bullard, when I heard him say, oh, well, it's only 20 percent, it reminded me of Bernanke saying, well, subprime and housing is very contained. The cost of capital is going up everywhere. Look at VC funding. Look at the level of IPOs. And you can be sure every non-bank a lender out there is tightening standards and raising the costs that they're charging their uh, borrowers. Torsten, I'll give you the final word here. Yeah, I think one thing, if we just step back and think about how long time did it take when the housing bubble burst in 2008 before the economy came back? Remember, residential investment, I mean, construction of homes dropped 50% after the 2008 housing bubble. So if we're now looking at a situation where commercial real estate needs to adjust, in other words, we need to go through several years where we will no longer be building skyscrapers to the same degree in Manhattan, that means that we could have as much as a drag of GDP of almost up to a percentage point over the next several years. So the conclusion is still that if it took time to clean up after the residential housing bubble in 2006, 7, and 8, it's probably also going to take time for GDP growth to clean up after this commercial real estate bubble that we're sitting through at the moment. Oh, sure. And, and Steve, actually, as everyone kind of follows along in this debate, so if City this morning said 65% uh, chance of a hike, we have, I think, at least five Fed speakers on tap for this week. What is, where is the market right now? Is it 50-50? Where do they think the, the sort of consensus is on the next meeting? And what kind of language cues should we be on the, look, on the alert for in terms of what we hear from officials this week? So it's 74 or 71.30 or 70.30, if you want to call it that, wow. um, in terms of in favor of a hike. Wow. I think that, you know, uh, it's been pointed out that uh, uh, Powell last time had a much more sort of ambivalent view about the next hike. He was sort of leaning on the credit crunch. And I, I really think maybe one thing we haven't talked about, I know we're running out of time, is, is the minutes from the meeting. I think we're going to get a lot of guidance from... How close a call was it last month to understand how close a call it will be next month? And I think that's going to be the key here. Did they were they were they on the fence and just kind of decided to do one more and then maybe take Peter's idea of a wait and see attitude? So I'll be looking closely at that in terms of the minutes of, of the meeting and, and, and whether or not there were different camps that were more or less concerned over the possibility of a credit crunch. But I just have to say this, that as much as I agree with Torsten and Peter about the idea of being cautious, 
The credit crunch issue has to come through the inflation channel to influence the Fed, especially because we got that one-year expectations today in the survey of, of consumer expectations that showed that the one-year expectations is up by half a point, and that's going to be a concern to them. So whatever the credit crunch does, it has to manifest itself in the inflation channel. So Torsten, because I, I liked Peter's sort of breakdown of where he thinks the inflation trend is going, could you also just give us the same sense? Where do you think CPI is trending in the next couple of months' time? So a very important answer to that question is that first, when we're sitting at home ordering stuff online, goods prices went up. Now goods prices have normalized. They basically did that in 2022. The theme of 2023 is that service prices are going to normalize. We're already seeing in the ISM services that we just got last week, that was a bit weaker. And most importantly, the subcomponent prices paid in ISM services has really trended down strongly. And that's a leading indicator both for headline inflation, core inflation, super core. And it's actually also a leading indicator for average hourly earnings. So there are definitely some strong downward trends in the service sector and inflation that should mean that by the end of this year the Fed should be looking at inflation that is at least a good deal closer to the two percent target than it's been for several years all right we got to leave it there but Steve I was surprised that we're 70 percent pricing a hike now did that go up after Friday's jobs report or was is that pretty consistent it's just much higher than I would have thought yeah no it, it had been it had been 50 50 and I think the banking data gave the market the all clear to price that in because it looks like there's been some slowing in the in the flow of deposits hmm. out of the banking system. So right. I think if, if, if that had continued apace, it would have been a cautionary uh, light for the market. All right, gentlemen, thank you all very, very much. Our Steve Leisman, Torsten Slock, and Peter Bookvar. Let's get to Tesla now, whose stock is down 20% in the past two months, including a 2% drop today after they announced another round of price cuts. These are the fifth price cuts since January, and they come about a week before new rules for EV tax credits go into effect. Let's turn to Phil LeBeau. Phil, does that explain their move here? Uh, that's part of it, Kelly. The other part is that demand has been waning, especially for the two most popular models, the Model Y, which is the best-selling electric vehicle in this country, and the Model 3. So here are the new base prices for the Model Y and the Model 3. By the way, this base price for the Model Y, this is an all-new model, uh, and it's coming in just under $50,000. The Model 3 now drops down another $1,000 to 41990 The price cut fallout, if there is one, and we're seeing that today in shares of Tesla, Analysts are not surprised. I read every analyst note today, and all of them said the same thing. Big surprise. We wouldn't be surprised if there are more. The wait times, as I mentioned, they have fallen. But at what price for Tesla shareholders? The price being gross auto margins. Will they fall under 20%? The expectation right now is that for the first quarter, they will come in at 20.1%, or 20.5, I should say, percent. Uh, and we could see that shift over the next two weeks before they report their Q1 results. Remember, Tesla still dominates the U.S. market, selling almost two out of every three electric vehicles in this country. But its market share is eroding, as many expected, as you see more electric vehicles come into the market. This, by the way, Kelly, it was up at 75 percent in the first quarter of last year. The standard range Model Y, getting back to your point, Kelly, about whether or not the new EV tax credits will, will have an impact, 
That's not expected to qualify for the full $7,500 because the battery pack comes, the cells come from China that are put into those standard range uh, Model uh, 3s. So what you could see when these rules are coming out next week is that some Teslas may get the full $7,500, some may only get $3,750. And this adjustment in the price is likely Tesla's way of saying to potential customers, okay, you don't get the full $7,500, but look, this price has come down relative to where it was. So I also was uh, skimming Whitney Tilson's note this morning, Phil, that said two, two of my friends hate their new Teslas. And among the reasons were that they didn't like that um, yoke steering wheel. They don't like the certain kinds of buttons for the functionality, the touchscreen. They say the stereo is horrible. If they fiddle with it while backing up, the rear camera disappears. The software is terrible. The service has been a nightmare. A bumper took four months to replace. One got rid of the Tesla and replaced it with the BMW i7. My point being, is it possible that Tesla has not yet found the car for everyone. You know, the demand has been incredible. It's supply, you know, you, right. it's going to be hard for any upstart to compete. It's even hard for Ford and GM to compete. That said, they need to pivot now, don't they, to a car that can truly be a mass market car at a price point and perhaps with features that can be adopted in a very, very broad way. And I wonder if the market is a little disappointed that they have yet to kind of do that. Well, two things here. You're asking you're, two points that you're making here. One deals with the features of the car. We'll talk about that in just a bit. With regard to the price point, Tesla is expected at some point, whether it comes in 25, 26, 27, to come in with a lower price mass market model. Some have called it a Model 2. That's mm -hmm. just the name that's been thrown out there. And that may come in somewhere in that thirty dollars to $35,000 range, something that could make people say, wow, okay, I'm ready to buy this. And by the time that comes out, Kelly, we're likely going to see other lower-priced offerings from other automakers. With regard to the functionality, and you mentioned Whitney Tilson's uh, comments, I, I can point to as many people who love different things about uh, the Tesla, whether it's the yoke, whether it's the uh, iPad that they use for controlling uh, all of the functionality within the car. But, but it's, it's a matter of style and taste. Mm -hmm. There may be some people out there who are saying, you know what, I want the full instrument cluster. I do not want to have uh, the iPad in the center and that it's a little too Spartan inside uh, the Tesla. But so far, their game plan and that style has worked. You can't deny that. Absolutely. And that's why they have the two best-selling EVs in this country. Yeah, a quick final comment, Phil, on Ford and GM and the rest of the automakers. If, especially now with the administration really pushing on, on fuel efficiency and all the rest of it, I mean, is this sure. making their next five to eight years that much more expensive? And is the market frustrated by that? Oh, it's going to be much more expensive. And we'll get the full rules. It's expected on Wednesday, Kelly, when we get the new EPA guidelines, which is expected to dramatically push the auto industry towards uh, sales of EVs, maybe two-thirds of the sales of vehicles in this country being EVs by 2032. We're at 7% right now, Kelly. To go from 7% up to 66%, 68%, there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of cost involved. Yeah, well said. And Tesla down 20% since February, but still up, I think, almost 60% this year. Phil, we'll leave it there. Thank you, sir. Phil Abeau reporting. Coming up, the post-pandemic PC slump. Steep declines for all major computer makers last quarter, including Apple. How should Tim Cook respond? We'll discuss that next. Plus, shares of Top Golf Callaway jumping today after John Rahm's come-from-behind victory at this weekend's Masters Tournament. But Matt Boss of J.P. Morgan warns big-ticket spending on golf may be coming under pressure. And we've got the details. As we head to break, let's get a quick look at markets with stocks across the board at session highs today. That means the Dow's positive, the Nasdaq only down 40. The exchange is back after this.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Not even Apple is immune to slowing PC demand. A new IDC report says out of the five biggest companies, Apple posted the biggest decline in Q1 shipments. They were down 41% year on year. But CEO Tim Cook may not be too bothered as he reportedly sets his sights on virtual reality. It's one of the many ways he's looking to maintain the company's reputation as an innovator in a post-Steve Jobs world. And he seems to be managing. Remember, under Cook's tenure, Apple became the first U.S. company worth a trillion dollars. Today, it's still worth more than double that. My next guest sat down with Cook for an exclusive look at how he's running the biggest company in the world. It's the cover of GQ. Let's bring in Zach Barry, and he's senior staff writer there, along with our very own Steve Kovac. Zach, welcome to you. What was the biggest surprise to you from sitting down and spending time with Tim Cook? Biggest surprise? Um, <clears throat> or does this man have any surprises? Well, I think, I think, yes, that is the surprise. I think the line on him sometimes is that he is a very buttoned-up corporate executive, uh, with no surprises to give. And the thing about him in person is that he's actually like a very lively, very charismatic Southern gentleman um, who you kind of get why he's been so successful running this company because he's very smart, very interested, and very kind of entertaining to be around, honestly. Hmm. I had always heard he had a little bit of an edge, uh, perhaps, you know, in, in meetings and with uh, you know, subordinates and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know if, if that's kind of dulled or fallen away over the years as his results have spoken for themselves, but he's widely recognized as having one of the greatest second acts in corporate history. Yeah, and I think the edge point that you're making is a really interesting one. I think he is a demanding person, um, and you'd have to be in that job. And it's actually one of the reasons why he's interesting to talk to, because if you're imprecise, or a little lazy or a little sloppy about something, he'll notice that. And I think as far as working for him, you know, he and I talked about this. He's a Socratic method guy. He's going to ask you questions and test how well you understand something. And if you understand it, great. If you don't, he's going to keep asking more questions and that might be uncomfortable for you. Steve, I'd turn to you now because when I hear that the company is betting on, you know, this headset, and obviously at some point this headset will be very important, but aren't we all realizing that maybe the metaverse isn't going to be as big of a universe and a total addressable market, if you will, as we previously thought, and that AI is really the game changer here? You know, do yeah. they risk getting meted, so to speak, <laughs> by these ambitions? I, I, they sure hope they're not going to get meted. But more interesting than what this headset can actually do, and by the way, we might learn in June at their WWDC event, that's in early June, look, more interesting than what this thing can do, we kind of already understand what these headsets can do. How do they pitch it? How do they market it? Because what Meta's doing is not working for them. They've already had to slash the price of their latest and greatest headset. They failed to really show a use case. There's not a big developer ecosystem out of there. So Apple has its work cut out for it. They have to get up there on stage and say, you've seen these terrible headsets before. We're all confused by it, but here's how Apple sees it. Here's how Tim Cook, we're talking about Tim, Here's Tim, what Tim thinks the future of this is. And he told Zach, augmented reality. He's been, he's been ringing that bell for five or six years now, how important augmented reality is. Keep in mind, Kelly, here's what they did. Years ago, they gave people the, I, the tools they needed to do AR on the phone. True. So they have that foundation already that Meta doesn't have and that other tech companies just don't have yet, just by the scale of how many iPhones are out there. So they can take that foundation, build on it from there, 
But again, what's the marketing pitch? Who's going to buy this? Why should they buy it? How is it better or more compelling than what we're already using? Zach, do you want to weigh in on that in terms of what this company thinks will be the product or the, the kind of you know, technology innovation that gets them to $3 trillion if they're ever going to get there? They've been there well, get, get back there. there. <laughs> Let me emphasize. Back there, yeah. They got there once already. Um, one is, you know, Tim was obviously very circumspect about what he would and wouldn't confirm when we spoke about this. I did ask, this has not succeeded in the market before. What makes you think that Apple could be different? And of course, the point that he made, it's very much part of Apple's self-image, is Apple routinely comes in the market and does a product that already exists better than other people are doing it. So I think in that sense, you can count on Apple to be, if they do this, confident that they're going to do it in a way that is perhaps more successful than some of their competitors. And then, yes, yeah, as, as Steve said, you know, Tim is very interested in AR. He's very interested in the possibilities of overlaying the digital world with the real world. And there's the delivery system for that, which I think there's a lot of controversy about, but there's the, I think they have a lot of clarity about this has a lot of potential for creative collaboration. This has a lot of potential for the kind of day you have now, but better and more effective and more creative. And so in that sense, I think the AR dream is still very alive, whether or not the headset that may or may not exist like effectively delivers that is a different question. You know, before we let you go, Zach, how how did Tim Cook end up on the cover of GQ? <laughs> I mean, how long did that take? What was the what was the pitch? Right. He was at a party in New York a couple days ago too, wearing like a blue tux wow. and yeah, with Donald Glover. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Give us the yeah, scoop. Yeah, can, can confirm he looked great. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, this was a this has been a long time coming. Um, I've interviewed Tim before. Uh, he and our editor in chief at GQ, Will Welch, have spoken before, and we had this issue, this these creativity awards that Steve referenced. We had a a lovely gala on Thursday, um, and we were thinking about what epitomizes modern creativity. And I think there's some intuitive ones like Donald Glover, and there are some maybe not as intuitive ones like Tim Cook. But sure. if you think about creativity in the last 20, 30 years, Apple has played a huge, huge role yeah. um, in every creative's life. Yeah. So in some ways, I think Tim made a lot of sense for that. No, and I, li I, I like knowing what makes him say, yes, I want exactly. to be known for that. That's who we are. Zach, it's great stuff. Thanks for joining us to talk about it. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Zach Barron, Steve, as always Thank a pleasure. You. Our own Steve Kovac. Coming up, we're heading into what's expected to be the worst earnings season since the pandemic first hit, with expectations of a 5 to 7% year-on-year drop. So which are the names with durable earnings power that are worth paying up for? One portfolio manager brings us her best under-the-radar ideas. Plus, tensions are on the rise in the Pacific as China wraps up a third day of military exercises around Taiwan, with more expected in the coming weeks. We've got that with the latest pulse check on China's economy. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Caterpillar leading the way after what's been a tough start to the year. Procter & Gamble and, yes, Apple, the worst performing stock, down almost 2% today. We're back after this.
Welcome back to the exchange, trying to see if the S&P turns positive to join the Dow, which is now up by 50 points, while the Nasdaq remains down by about a quarter of 1% today. We'll look at some of the movers this hour as well. We've got to talk about this potential deal in the energy space where Pioneer shares are up about 6% today on this news or rumor that it could merge with ExxonMobil. The Wall Street Journal reporting Exxon has held informal talks to acquire Pioneer, which is currently worth north of $49 billion. Uh, Exxon shares notably are only down about half a percent on this report as well. Elsewhere, the movie theaters are getting a boost from the Super Mario Brothers smashing debut uh, movie debut this weekend. Cinemark's up 7%, AMC's up 9%, still a $5 stock. IMAX up 3%. The movie hit number one, both in the U.S. and worldwide. It took in $377 million globally. That's the biggest opening weekend ever for an animated title. We should note it was produced by Universal and our parent company, Comcast. I saw an upgrade to five below today as well because it says Super Mario's inventory uh, might be flying off the shelves. Meantime, we've got bank earnings on deck this Friday, but there's some troubling data when it comes to their balance sheets. As Steve Leesman mentioned earlier, U.S. bank lending dropped by more than $100 billion in just the last two weeks of March. It's the biggest slump on record, and commercial banks dumped nearly $110 billion of mortgage-backed securities during the last week of March as they try to raise funds and reduce risk. This is according to the St. Louis Fed. That's interfering to some extent with the ability to pass along lower rates to home buyers. Despite a 60 basis point drop of the 10-year Treasury the past month, mortgage rates have fallen less. They're still hovering around 6.5%. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? All right, the bumpiness in banking continues. Thanks, Kelly. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. South Korea responding to reports that the U.S. is spying on its Asian ally. The reports were part of that cache of Pentagon documents leaked over the weekend. South Korea will demand that the U.S. take appropriate measures, quote, uh, once the investigation into the leak concludes, this according to a South Korean official. A ship carrying around 400 migrants is adrift in the Mediterranean Sea after the captain abandoned the vessel in waters between Malta and Italy. Charity organizations in the area, area say the ship is at risk of capsizing and is running low on fuel. Malta had reportedly ordered two merchant ships nearby to not conduct rescues, but rather just to supply additional fuel, fuel and food. And the FBI is warning against using public phone charging stations. Officials say these chargers can be subject to something called juice jacking which is when bad actors can use public chargers to infect phones and devices with malware. The FBI says people should stick with their own USB cables and charging plugs. Back to you, Kelly. <laughs> okay, well, I guess that was a waste of money then. <laughs> yeah. Tyler, I'll see you soon. Still ahead, it's earnings season again, and the results are not expected to be pretty. We'll look at some of the sectors expected to get hit the hardest and a couple bright spots, too, when the exchange is back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Earnings season unofficially kicks off later this week with the big banks reporting. And while the street doesn't agree on the exact figures when it talk about the overall season, they can agree it's going to be pretty bad. Goldman thinks earnings will fall about 7% year on year. According to Refinitiv, the official tally is for about a 5.5% drop. Uh, by the way, these are about the biggest declines since the third quarter of 2020. So some of the worst performers and how we got here include materials, whose earnings are expected to be down 33% from 2022, healthcare down 19 
2%, and tech down about 14% as well. Most of the pain there, by the way, in hardware and in semiconductors. Now, on the flip side, in terms of the positives, consumer discretionary. This one is expected to have a growth rate of more than 35%. Also, the industrials expected to be up 16%. Energy rounding out the top three as well with an 11-point game. The financials are the only other sector expected to see positive growth. And speaking of financials, this is the first earnings season, season since we had some sector reclassifications last month. One of the tech subsectors was dissolved, moving the likes of Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal into the financials, so it's a little growthier now. ADP and paychecks were moved to the industrials, and elsewhere, Target, Dollar General, and Dollar Tree were all moved from consumers uh, to consumer staples, I should say, from discretionary, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. And given the pressure on earnings, my next guest says it's all the more important to find franchises now with durable earnings power. Joining me is Julie Beal. She's portfolio manager at Kane Anderson Rudnick and a CNBC contributor. Julie, it's great to see you. Overall, I mean, yeah, this, do we call this an earnings recession? I, I think it's going to be pretty mixed. It really depends on the type of businesses you have. You can see some places in consumer discretionary doing well. You can even see some places in tech that are actually doing okay. Some of the software vendors that have really you know, strong, sticky recurring revenue, they're going to be okay. But if you think about certain types of businesses, particularly in financials, and I'm not just talking about you know, you're smaller, but I think all the way up and down, it's going to be really challenging. And I think everyone is going to be taking a much deeper look at what's happening in terms of their credit quality. Well, that reminds me of one of the areas you're looking for opportunity, which is basically kind of, you know, correct me if I'm mistaken, pro- providing tech solutions to the financials. Is that right? Yeah, I would much rather own businesses that actually serve the, the, the banks. If I think of a company like a Jack Henry, it's a you know, kind of sleepy software business that provides back office software to small and mid cap banks. You look at their financials through the Great Recession, it doesn't even look like they serve financials, right? That is the kind of durable franchise of earnings that we're looking for, because those tend to perform all the way through a cycle. Or Verisk, I see here, you know, if you're looking through the insurance space, you think that one as well? Yeah, Verisk is kind of interesting, right? Because they have this core business that really has among the highest quality principles, right? People have to give them data and then they have to pay for the data back. That's a great business model. And they had diversified away from that. And now they're refocusing on the core business. And I think that's a real improvement in the financials for them. Another thing I think is worth highlighting as everyone races to identify the next big platform winners in AI is that you're not racing to do that. Why not? You know, I think if you think about ChatGPT, right, I mean, my inbox is bombarded with yeah. expert calls on, you know, what's the latest in ChatGPT. And frankly, we are just not able to predict this technology. We don't know. Did you really think that the first wave of AI was going to be in like making, you know, new pictures and new art and new design? No, like you wouldn't really think that's what it was going to be. I think the healthcare applications are really interesting. But the thing is, is when you have this kind of nascent technology, you really want deep pockets and resources to exploit it. So a business like Google is probably better positioned than some fabulous whiz-bang startup. That's what we're focused on. Yeah, what about healthcare, which a lot of people, they're kind of going to for this sleepy factor that you're describing. Um, at the same, you know, Yes, it's had a good you know, five or six day stretch here, but the earnings are going to be down, the margins are going to be down. There's a lot of kind of post-COVID weirdness to work out still. What, what would you say about that? Yeah, I think the thing about healthcare that makes it tricky is exactly as you say, the COVID weirdness makes it very hard to be able to guess how the businesses are really doing. I think for us, we're trying to avoid a lot of businesses that are sensitive to kind of FDA approvals and patents rolling off. It's kind of the same idea as what we're doing in financials. We like those businesses that are serving healthcare. 
um, ones that provide, you know, the, the glass stoppers and tubes like a West Pharmaceuticals, where they benefit from a strong pipeline of drug development, but they're not dependent on the FDA for the individual approval. So there's less binary risk. I guess, broadly speaking, Julie, there's there's kind of two thoughts about the market so far this year. The, the Nasdaq's up 16% since Jan 1. And, you know, half the room goes, see, there's no recession or it's already priced in, and the stock market is telling you that. And in other words, you should chase this. And the other half of the room goes, this is a head fake, and, you know, stay to the sidelines and don't get sucked in. How? Which camp are you in? You know, I think it's one of those things where you're trying to be able to predict the complexity of the U.S. economy. And frankly, I can't even predict what my five-year-old is going to want in his Easter eggs, right? <laughs> I can't even get that right. And he's only slightly less complex than the U.S. economy. So I think if, if, if there's anything I've really learned in the last two or three years, right, is it's really hard to be able to predict these businesses and very hard to know how the economy is going to respond to exogenous shocks like major interest rate increases, for example. So I think for us, we really are trying to find these durable businesses because we know that they can perform well in good times and they tend to do better even when the, we are in a recessionary environment. And does that leave you steering clear, for instance, of energy, of materials, of things that are highly geared to commodities, or is it, again, the picks and shovels approach? Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's really hard to find businesses in energy in particular where it's a differentiated business and they're not super sensitive to commodity pricing and fluctuations. You know, for us, earnings variability makes a business very hard to run. It makes the hard stock to the, the stock very hard to price. And so we like a more steady eddy kind of business and, and energy just makes it hard to find those. That's for sure. Julie, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Julie Beal, Kane Anderson. Coming up, tensions with China are ratcheting up again after the Taiwanese president's trip to the States. China engaging in multiple days of military drills around Taiwan, and the U.S. has responded. We've got the latest live from Beijing right after this. Welcome back. China has declared its military ready to fight after completing three days of exercises around Taiwan after the Taiwanese president's meeting with Speaker McCarthy here in the U.S. Our Eunice Yoon is in Beijing with that story and with the U.S. response. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Kelly. Well, Taiwan has responded tonight to Beijing, saying that it will never relax its efforts to strengthen its combat readiness. Over the past three days, the Chinese military has been simulating blockades as well as precision strikes. The state media has reported that the Chinese homegrown aircraft carrier known as the Shandong has also taken part in the war games for the first time. Now, despite the tense drills, um, many people here are talking about how the um, action appears to be less aggressive than what Beijing did when a uh, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last summer. Uh, the belief is that uh, Beijing uh, wants to appear stern and tough on Taiwan, while at the same time playing up its role as an international peacemaker. In fact, there were several foreign dignitaries here um, last week, but the drills took place only after all of them left. Now, uh, the U.S. has said that it's monitoring the situation, um, but perhaps in a sign of how tense the situation really is, uh, the U.S. has dispatched a destroyer uh, to the South China Sea and in waters that the Chinese claim um, are near uh, islands, which the Chinese claim as their own. Um, and the Chinese military has accused now uh, the U.S. of uh, um, what they describe as illegally trespassing Chinese waters. And they say that their troops are on high alert. Kelly? 
Eunice, we were also struck by these comments from the French President Macron, obviously, who seemed to imply that Europe couldn't win uh, on Ukraine and by extension couldn't win on Taiwan and that perhaps wouldn't have the willpower to do so in joining the U.S. if it came to that point. I'm curious uh, if that's already being played up there. Oh, it's definitely being played up here on the state media, has been uh, talking very much about how uh, the French and uh, the Chinese have so much in common. Uh, there really has been an effort to uh, talk about how important the relationship is uh, with Europe. So uh, the, it, it hasn't been lost on the Chinese um, what Macron has said and his uh, what appears to be an affinity from their perspective to the Chinese. Yeah. Eunice, thanks. We appreciate it today. Our Eunice Yoon reporting in Beijing. Still ahead, John Robb winning his first Masters over the weekend, helping this name pays for its best day since January. But can Callaway withstand a, big, a pullback in big-ticket spending on golf? We will ask Matt Boss of J.P. Morgan that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. John Rahm wasn't the only big winner at this year's Masters Tournament. Shares of Topgolf Callaway, that's our mystery chart, and Rahm's trusted brand, by the way. They're on pace for their best day since January, up nearly 4%. And one analyst is betting the brand will have a stellar second half this year, even if big-ticket spending starts to slow on golf. Joining me now is Matthew Boss, leisure analyst at J.P. Morgan. Matt, welcome. Appreciate you being here. Absolutely. So, okay, by the way, does it ever pay off to jump in on a stock like this the day after? It, it, It always feels like this is a move you want to fade or maybe it does build brand equity over time i don't know look i I think right now with the golf industry you have the macro and the micro so on the macro look participation is up 20 percent that's versus points right versus pre-pandemic yes and so if you think about the participation in the sport and then what's leading it is actually off course which is top golf and that is the top golf callaway combination that you have the stock trading three turns below pre-pandemic and in my opinion this sport is in a better place coming out of this pandemic than where we were before. Yeah, even some friends of mine from a sort of college friend of retail are launching a female golf apparel brand because they say it's gotten so popular now it needs to kind of catch up and be Lululemon, yes. uh, so to speak. But how sustainable is this? You know, even in the long run, if people are golfing more than they were pre-pandemic, eh, it starts to feel like, look at PC demand is down. You know, all, all the PC bubble or the COVID uh, pandemic bubble stuff is unwinding. At some point, won't golf be part of that? I think what you have to focus on is experiential. And I think the other thing right now that's a big focus for us is health and wellness, outdoor, and really active participation. And that's why I think that the Top Golf Callaway combination has that. Across our coverage, we also in leisure cover Bolero. I think that's a real trend tied to a lot of mom and pop bowling alleys across the country. We cover Brunswick on the boating side. I think that industry also comes out. And then larger picture, we have Nike and Lululemon, which we've talked about on the show before, that I think really play into that casual trend. I almost wonder if the pandemic breathed new life into some of these brands that were aging and maybe needed that. Um, But do you still see, because when I was looking at some of your notes on this, it does look like your surveys are picking up a moderation and maybe big ticket spending on golf, for instance, a a natural unwind after a heavy spending cycle. So you have some cross currents that I would say for the front half of 23 are absolutely relevant from some of the store work that we've done. You have apparel overhang right now. Now, part of that is you have disruptive brands. You have the Dunning brand with some new uh, performance fabrications. You have different demographics out there that are really gaining steam. It's East Side Golf, I would say. Um, And you see a number of different brands that really were on scene 
down at the Masters last week. We were actually on site. And I mean, I'll tell you just the difference in some of the experiential and really the excitement around the overall sport. But I also think you have the replacement cycle where you do have new innovation out there, the paradigm by Callaway, some new irons on the way in the back half of the year from Titleist. And because of that, I think that is where the large ticket macro does play in as well. One more golf specific question, if you will. So you're seeing field work pointing to 15 to 35 percent discounts on some of these drivers and woods and hybrids and iron. And and that's across all major brands. So Mm -hmm. what is that about? And is there going to be a knock on effect for the big box retailers that carry these things? I think it's the same as what we see across our uh, larger picture apparel and, and, uh, and retail landscape, which is, innovation, differentiation, and really those who are spending to drive that uh, are going to win. And I think, again, tying back to the macro, which to me plays into the participation in this sport, which I think is stronger on the way out. I think you do have a lull here that's taking place near term. Part of that is the overall consumer and some of the the inflationary Mm -hmm. pressure that's on them. And then some of it is the innovation that I think is right around the corner and I think you're seeing it with Paradigm, which was the choice of John Rahm here in the, uh, in the Masters. Uh, and I think you're seeing some innovation from a number of different brands. You're overweight on, uh, on Callaway and Top Golf Callaway. So I guess finally give us then going into earnings season. I know we're still maybe a month out from a lot of sure. the retailers, but what is the feeling on the consumer right now? I see data on the one hand, they're stretched on the, you know, in, uh, in 10 seconds, if you could. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're coming off our conference last week. We had 20 plus companies. I think the consumer is stable. I think you want value and convenience. That for us is off pricers and dollar stores. And then I would stick with best in class brands. And that's where I was saying Nike, Lulu, Callaway, Topgolf, uh, I, I think fit that bill. All right, Matt, thanks for joining me here. I really appreciate it. Great to be back. Was it fun last week too? It was great. Yeah. I mean, how could it not be? I yes. don't know. Matt Boss from JP Morgan. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. For more thoughts on the markets, the economy, and more, sign up in one easy step at cnbc.com slash newsletters. Uh, scan the QR code on your screen. Power Lunch is up after the break. Tyler's over there getting ready. Uh, did he watch the Masters? I'm sure he did. I'll see him after the break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.